you have your copy of Scripture, we'll be looking at one verse this morning, the book of Proverbs, chapter 29, verse 18. starting a new series today where we look at a healthy church. Book of Proverbs chapter 29 verse 18 tells us from the English Standard Version, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. I wonder how everyone's doing today. Was everyone able to find a parking spot when they got here? How about our entrance? Is it easy or hard to get into First Baptist Church? Do you know where to park since the lot is behind the church? How about the church? Do you recognize that this is a church? Do you notice our sign? Does it stand out enough? Does our church stand out? How about the temperature in our building? Is it okay? Is it too warm? Maybe it's too cold. How about the projector? Does it bother you that the image does not always show up that great at times? Or that it shuts off? In the middle of the service, how about our seating? Are you able to find a seat okay? Are you sitting around people you like? Are the pews comfortable enough for you? Did someone greet you when you came in this morning? Is our lift still working? How about the singing? Is the singing okay? Is it too contemporary for your taste? Because you know some people go to other churches just because of the music. What about our decor? Is it tasteful or not? How about the bulletin? Does it give you enough information or does there need to be more information? Or maybe we should not even have a bulletin. What about our greeting time? Is it frustrating for you? Do you like it? Do you not like it? How about the preaching? Is it too long? Not long enough? Does this pastor step on too many toes or does he get too personal? Does anyone wonder why our average attendance is right around 63 for six years? Or how about this one? Does anyone wonder why the average stay of a pastor at First Baptist Church is so short in our nearly 70 year history? Seems to be less than four years, with the longest being 12 years. Some people would blame those pastors. They just were not good pastors. Others might say they just did not have the perseverance. The pastors that have come and gone, they might have a different take. And members that have come and gone, they might have even a different take. Perhaps it's those crazy deacons They're the reason pastors leave. They're trying to be in control all the time. Or maybe it's because our church is just too small. Or maybe it's because we're just a stale church. In June of 2013, I became the pastor of First Baptist Church Washington. 
One thing I set out to do, which not very many people know, was to not make any significant changes in my first years as a pastor. My goal was to come and faithfully preach the word of God and let the word of God do its work in the people of God while I observed. Not long after I was here, I went to a funeral and I introduced myself to someone and invited them to church. Later, I found out that they had said they would never set foot in this church again. But I watched as the Lord worked in their life and she eventually gave her life to Christ and I got to baptize her. Also, not long after I came, we had a tornado. Some of you may remember, go through our town. My daughter nearly died in our living room the day before. Apparently, we still are not exactly sure what happened, and that's not an exaggeration. My father-in-law passed away of esophageal cancer. Needless to say, my first year at First Baptist Washington had many trials, but it also had many blessings. I've had deacons bless me in tremendous ways, not just monetarily, but with their friendship and even in those moments through tears when they've said, Pastor, thank you for being here and thank you for being our pastor. And I hope you know we love you. I prayed for God to send me those that would encourage so that when times came for tough decisions, I would be able to make them. One night on a Wednesday night, a man walked in with a full-on suit and I was sitting there in shorts and a t-shirt I introduced myself as the pastor and looked he and his wife over in their nice outfits. He said, I have one question for you. And I said, what is that? He said, do you teach on the sovereignty of God in this church? To which I responded, is it in the Bible? To which he responded, yes. To which I responded, then I teach on it. He said, well, we'll be back on Sunday. I remember turning to one of our deacons and saying, he is never coming back. But sure enough, he did. And he and his wife have been a constant source of encouragement to me and our members in our church. I can recall meeting a couple in the hospital of all places and talking with them and telling me their story, how she used to attend FBC and hoped to maybe one day they would come back. And sure enough, they are members of our church. I continued to pray, Lord, I know hard times are coming. Lord, I know I will have to make hard decisions. I need people who will stand with me. I remember on December 31st, 2017, A mountain of a man came and sat right back there on the back right. I remember talking with him and asking him questions. I remember in the few months to follow his family becoming friends with my family and that we would be hanging out together. And he would prove to be a great friend to me and a constant source of encouragement, constantly talking theology and the Bible with me, I had no idea that less than a year later that I'd be doing what every pastor fears. 
doing CPR on a friend and telling his wife she is now a widow. I still can't get the images out of my head, and I still at times confess, God, I don't understand. Some of my best days of ministry and my hardest days of ministry have been right here at FBC. I've been here going on six years, and Lord willing, I will be here for many more years to come. But I share all this to say this. That day when my friend died, his shirt said, Semper Reformanda, which means always reforming or always changing in reference to the church. The time for change has come, and the time for hard decisions is on us. The time for me to face my biggest fear in ministry is here, and I know people will either follow or I will fail, and the beauty is I don't know which will happen. Let me tell you what I do know. The reasons pastors have left and the reasons that our church has had struggles is not because of growing pains, not even necessarily because of sin, but it leads to one issue. We are not a healthy church. Do we have traits of a healthy church? Absolutely. But we have yet to have the structure of a healthy church. So over the next several weeks, I intend to lay out for us what a healthy church looks like. My desire is that we will begin to lay the groundwork of being a healthy church, and we will see God bless as a result. So this morning, I want to address two main things. First, what are you looking for? And second, what is a healthy church? And under what is a healthy church, we will look at our Christianity. We'll look at what a church is and what a church is not. And what every church should aspire to be and how it can display the character of God. Because remember, where there is no prophetic vision, the people will cast off restraint. What am I looking for first? I want, to ask, I want you to ask yourself that question specifically I want you to ask it this way what am I looking for in a church now I know that maybe you haven't given that much thought so just take a moment and ask yourself that question what does the ideal church look like perhaps you could say well the, this is the way the ideal church is. It's a place with, and then fill in the blank. Some might say the ideal church is a church with great music. You need to have a choir and a whole orchestra and beautiful music that glorifies God. Or maybe you think it is to have guitars and drums and a few other instruments and be contemporary songs and that are up to date because that's what people listen to on the radio. So we must Meet them where they are. Maybe it's not the music at all, but perhaps it's the preaching. It has to have good preaching. The sermon must be meaningful, but not heavy-handed. Biblical, but not boring. Practical, and not 
picky and legalistic. The preacher has to be scholarly, someone who loves doctrine and never smiles. Or maybe he needs to be a funny guy with lots of stories. Or maybe he needs to be the family counselor type. He has been there and done that. And I'm sure you have an expectation of what the pastor should be like. Maybe the ideal church has people that the same places as you are in life so that you can connect with them. They will understand what you're going through. So then you have to have people just out of college or you have to have people with families or you have to have people that are older or you have to have people that shop at thrift stores or you have to have people that like pizza or you have to have people that love designer boutiques or you have to have people that eat ice cream a lot or people that fill in the blank because they got to be like you and have your interests or perhaps you think no what I want in a church is a church that has opportunities to get involved you know service is important is the church big on evangelism and missions? Does the church help the poor? Are there opportunities for fathers to meet with other fathers or for people to assist in the children's ministry? Or does it have programs that hold my attention and the attention of my kids or my teenagers? Or maybe the ideal church is a church that just makes you feel a certain way. So if you're used to a church that feels like a coffee house or an old chapel or a mall or whatever it might be, then that is what you would expect for an ideal church. What we must understand is there are many things that can be good, that can be neutral, but what is it that you value most in a church? What is it that you're looking for? A place that's welcoming or maybe passionate or authentic or big or small or trendy or intimate or exciting or hardcore or friends or what should a church be? Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. Listen, this is important. This sermon series is for every Christian. The authors of the New Testament addressed Christians. When the churches in Galatia started listening to false teachers, Paul had something to say to them. He said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ in Galatians 1.6. Paul said, you. He said, you. He's not just speaking to the pastors. He's speaking to the church body. He does not write to the leaders and say, hey, leaders, knock off the teaching of heresy. But instead, he writes to the body of believers and says, I'm calling you into account. Paul did the same thing with the church at Corinth. He didn't tell the pastors and the staff to take care of the problem that they were having. No, he told the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to take care of the problem. You may say, well, pastor, why are you bringing this, this up? Well, because as your pastor, yes, I desire to lead us. But you are responsible for what this church becomes. I will be held accountable before God. But so will you. And you won't be able to stand before God and blame it on your pastor that you did not do what should be done. You will stand before God and give an account for whether 
or not you gathered regularly with the church and spurred the church on to love and good deeds and whether you fought to maintain the hope of the gospel in the body of Christ. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. So, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? Secondly, what is a healthy church? What is a healthy church? If you call yourself a Christian, then it's vital that you care about the healthy church. Care what, what is a healthy church? Notice I did not say this time what you want in a church, but what is a healthy church? And I'm going to attempt to do this in four ways. One, what does my Christianity have to do with the church? Two, what the church is. Three, what is God's ultimate purpose for the church? And four, why the Bible um, must be our guide for the church. Why do this? Because where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. What does my Christianity have to do with the church? What does your Christianity have to do with the church? Well, recent polls are showing church members, church membership is on the decline. And part of the reason that church membership is on the on decline is that um, we have this idea that I don't have to be a member of a church to be a good Christian. So I can be a good Christian without being a church member. And that idea is totally false. A healthy local church must be essential in the life of a Christian. Part of the issue is so many times we view our Christianity as a personal relationship with God. And we talk about that a lot and it doesn't go much beyond that. Sure, this personal relationship has implications on how we are to live. However, we fail to understand how this personal relationship necessitates a number of secondary personal relationships. Mainly the relationships that Christ establishes between his body and the church. Now, God does not expect us to pick and choose these relationships on a whim, but we would have a relationship, an actual flesh and blood relationship, an actual step on your toes relationship with a body of people. So, in order to do that, we have to say, well, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who has been first and foremost forgiven and reconciled to God. This happens when someone repents of their sin and they place their trust in the perfect and substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. A Christian is someone who knows that if they were to ask, be asked that question, if you were to die right now and stand before God, and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? The Christian would say, you shouldn't let me in. I am a sinner. I have a debt I can't pay. But because of your promises and your mercy, Jesus had a debt he did not owe. And he paid my debt in my place as my substitute for my sin. And he satisfied your royal and righteous requirement on my behalf and has removed the wrath from my sin. So a Christian has been reconciled to God in Christ and the wrath of God has been satisfied and the Christian has now been declared righteous before God and who lives in the hope of one day appearing before God in heaven. But the problem is we often stop there and we don't move beyond that. There is a second aspect though. 
of this whole idea of reconciliation. That is that a Christian is someone who by their virtue of being reconciled to God, because now I'm a Christian who is reconciled to God in Christ Jesus, now I have also been reconciled to the people of God. In Genesis, right after we read about the fall of Adam and Eve, we have the story of one human murdering another. Cain murders Abel. The reason why we see this is that Adam's sin of breaking fellowship with God resulted in an immediate break in the fellowship between humans. It has become every man for himself. This is why Jesus commands all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And what does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so, through Christ's reconciliation with God means being reconciled to everyone else who's reconciled to God. This is what Paul declares in Ephesians 2. He starts off declaring the great salvation that God has given us in Christ Jesus. And then he turns in the second half of Ephesians 2, describing what that means for the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. And by extension, to everyone who is in Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Ephesians 2, 14 and 16. Now all those who belong to God are fellow citizens. And members of God's household, verse 19. We are joined together with Christ in one holy temple, verse 21. The whole point is that we are reconciled now to one another. You and I are reconciled together. Because we both know Christ and we've been reconciled to God through Christ. And now we are reconciled to each other. We are we are, not only what is a Christian, but number two, we are part of a family. If you're an orphan, you don't adopt your parents. They adopt you. And you take on their name. That's the way the church is supposed to work. You're to be adopted into the family of God. Hebrews 2.11 the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. This is not to be a dysfunctional family where family members are estranged from one another. It's a fellowship. When God called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, 1 Corinthians 19 or 1 verse 9. He also called you into fellowship with the whole family, 1 Corinthians 5, 2. Not only that, but is a bold bond together by our individual decisions, but ultimately bound together by Christ. And the scripture makes it clear that it would be as foolish as if you were to say, I'm not a part of this family, as it would be to cut off your own hand or nose. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. 1 Corinthians 12, 22. The New Testament uses so many analogies to describe the church. A family, a fellowship, a body and a bride, a people and a temple, a lady and her children. 
And never, ever does the New Testament conceive of the Christian existing on a prolonged basis outside the fellowship of the church. It's not in there. The church is not really a place. But it's a people. It's God's people. Bound together in Christ. Well, why do you need to be a church member? Committing to a body of believers is a natural outcome of being a Christian. If one has no desire to be committed to an actual group of gospel-believing, Bible-teaching Christians, you might want to question whether or not you belong to the body of Christ at all. If you have no desire to be committed to other Christians, maybe you don't belong to the body at all. That's not my idea. It's what the Bible teaches us. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Hebrews 10, 23 through 27. A true Christian builds his life into the lives of other believers through concrete fellowship within a local church. True believers know they need accountability. They need instruction of, of the local people called the church, and the church needs them. We demonstrate to the world that we have been changed, not primarily because we memorize some Bible verses, or that we pray for our meals before we eat, or that we tie the portion of our income to the church and listen to Christian radio stations and wear Christian t-shirts, but we prove to the world, we show the world that we are Christians primarily because we are increasingly showing a willingness to put up with, to forgive, and even to love a bunch of fellow sinners. You and I can't demonstrate love or joy or patience or kindness if you're sitting all by yourself on an island. We demonstrate it when the people we've committed to Loving, give us good reasons not to love them, but you love them anyway. The church gives a visual presentation of the book of the gospel. When we forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us, when we commit to one another as Christ has committed to us, and when we lay down our lives for one another as Christ laid down his life for us, we're showing the world the gospel. I'm telling you that you must be committed to the local body of believers. One last thing on this and I'll move on because I'm going to run out of time quickly. Number four. We will give an account. We will give an account. It is both the pastors and the leaders and every Christian's responsibility to be thinking about that gathering of people called the church and what it looks like. 
This means that you should care about what our church is and what it should be if you belong to it as Christians. We care about the church because it's the very body of Christ. When Saul was persecuting the church, what did Jesus say? Saul's on the road, right? The Lord strikes him with blindness. He falls off his horse. And what does Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? That's not what he says, does he? Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so closely identified with the church that he referred to the church as himself. Do you identify yourself with whom your Savior identifies with? Does your heart share the passions of Christ that you are so closely identified with the church that if you do, somebody does something to the body, it is as if they've done it to you? God will ask each member of the body, did you rejoice with the other members of the body when they rejoiced? Did you mourn with those who mourned? Did you treat the weaker parts as indispensable? And did you treat the parts that most think less honorable with special honor? Did you give double honor to those that led and taught you? 1 Corinthians 12, 22-26 and 1 Timothy 5, 17. Christian, are you ready for the day on which God will call you to account for how you have loved and served the church family? Are you ready? Are you ready to the day when God will call you and account for how you loved and served your church leaders? Are you ready? Do you know what God says the church should be? Where there is no prophetic vision, the people will cast off restraint. What is a church? What a church is? And what a church is not now. I said earlier, something I want to come back to. The church is a people, not a place. The church is not a building. The church is not a place that provides spiritual services. I know we think of this building. Well, we're going to go to church and we go to a building. The building is not the church. The church is a blood-bought people of God. That's the church. This is why Paul said that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus did not give himself for a building or a place, but for a people. Because a church is a people. It will aid in us recognizing why it's important. And what is, what is important and what is not important. I know for a fact I need help in this area. Because sometimes I have a tendency to elevate things to importance that really aren't important. But if I decide to leave a church based upon a preference, what does that say about my love for Christ and his people? Or what if as a pastor, I marginalize a bunch of people based on preference? Then at that point, I've forgotten fundamentally that a church is a people, not a place. 
But at the same time, we should care about what happens at a church and what the church does. In fact, the Bible makes this abundantly clear. So how do we balance the two out? Well, how do we care about the people but also care about what they do? One thing we have to remember about the church is that it is a group of people that is growing in grace and therefore we love and serve one another and we are patient with one another. Sometimes what really needs adjustment is not the church but our expectations. We need to ask ourselves whether we truly know how to love and persevere with church members. Do I truly know how to love them and persevere with them? Who have different opinions than I have. Who fail to meet my expectations. Or who even sin against me because we all have sins that need to be forgiven. So the church is a people, not a place. But also the church is a people, not a statistic. I've been to many conferences for pastors. And the question that is asked often is, what size is your church? And so often our church is a statistic. Many pastors have dreams of pastoring larger churches instead of trusting that the Lord has given them what they have for a reason. I've had moments like that. Moments where my heart has been sinful. There have been times I thought, Lord, I just want our church just to be bigger. It's not wrong to have desires for your church to grow. It is wrong if those desires lead to indifference with the saints that are currently surrounding me in the present. The church is a people, not a place, not a statistic. It's a body of believers united together under Jesus Christ who is the head. It is a family joined together by adoption through Jesus. I pray that we would understand as Christians that we have a responsibility to love one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, hold one another accountable, and the rest of our church family that hold them accountable. What, that we understand that we are, we are indeed our brother's keeper. And that we have a high responsibility to our brothers and sisters of our church family. We only have to look at the words of Christ to understand this. Perhaps you remember the scene. There's a crowd sitting around Jesus. They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus responds, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. That's powerful. That's what Jesus thought of the people that followed him that did the will of God. The church. Is it the same for you? Fourthly, I want us to see what we must aspire to be. I will use one word to sum it up. What we must aspire to be as a church is healthy. The church is a body of believers. A people that has been purchased by the blood of the eternal son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we should strive to be healthy. 
Healthy is the idea of something that's living, it's growing as it should. Can we be healthy and have problems? Yep. Because we're not perfect, right? The church isn't perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. However, for the church to be healthy means it's doing what it should be doing. Because it's guided by the word of God. A healthy church is not a perfect church. They've not figured everything out, but rather it is a church that continually strives to take God's side against ungodly desires and the sins of the world, our flesh and the devil. It is a church that continually conforms itself, always changing to the word of God. As I said at the beginning, it is semper reformanda. It is always reforming. A healthy church is a congregation of believers that increasingly reflects God's character as his character has been revealed in God's word. This is the kind of church we must aspire to be. And by God's grace, this is the kind of church that we will be. So if a church is going to reflect God's character, then we must understand that this character is revealed in God's word, and that is where we must start, not with whatever works. We don't say, oh, well, I wonder what's going to work this time. So if there's something that our church thinks they should do or be that is not in God's word, then we would have a problem. Scripture must be the foundation for everything the church does. So what does the Bible teach about the image of God? If, if we are saying that the church is to reflect the character of God, then we need to know a few things. So here's a brief version, okay? God created the world and humankind to display the glory of God. That's why mankind and the world are created to display the glory of God who he is. Adam and Eve were supposed to bear the image of God's character to the world. They didn't. The people of Israel who were supposed to do the same thing, they didn't. So God sends his son to bear his perfect image to the world so that the world would see his glory through his son his holy and loving character, and to remove the wrath of God against the sin of the world. In Christ, God came to display God. And in Christ, God came to save. Now, the church, which has been granted the life of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, is called to display the character and glory of God to all of the universe testifying in word and in action to this great wisdom and work of salvation. And so what are you looking for in a church? What are you really looking for? Is it good music? Some people say, you know, what's your music? People will, will ask me when I have a conversation about our church. Some, a lot of times when the first question, well, what kind of music do you have? Is that what you're looking for in a church? Maybe it's a church with a cool, hip vibe. Because you know I'm real cool and hip. And, and so sometimes that's what people are looking for. Sometimes people will say, well, what kind of service do you have? Is it a traditional service or is it a contemporary service? And then some churches, well, they have both. What about your pastor? Is he a cool pastor? Yes, he is. <laughs> I submit, 
What we should be looking for is a group of rebels that have been pardoned by the blood of Jesus Christ, whom God wants to use to display his glory before all the heavenly hosts because the church speaks the truth about him and they look more and more like him, living as a holy, loving, and united community of believers. That's what every person should be looking for in a church where there is no prophetic vision. The people will cast off restraint. Well, how will we display this character? How will we do it? How will our church, First Baptist Church, display the character of God? How will we be a healthy church? All of history is divided into those who listen to God and those who don't listen to God. And the church is no different. We will either listen to God or we won't. That's why Matthew reported what Jesus said to Satan concerning man's living on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4.4. As well as Jesus' final words to his disciples to make disciples in all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Matthew 28.20. That's why... Mark reported Jesus' parable of the seed that's planted in four different soils as a parable about the word of God in Mark chapter 5. Some will accept it and some won't. That's why Luke described himself as an eyewitness and a servant of the word of God in Luke 1, 2. And why he reports Jesus' promise. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it in Luke eleven twenty eight. That's why John reported Jesus' last words to Peter as thrice repeated, feed my sheep. Well, feed them with what? The word of God. John 21, 15 through 17. That's why when the early church in Acts gathered, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, Acts 2.42. That's why Paul told the Romans, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ, Romans 10.17. That's why he told the Corinthians that the message of the cross is the power of God unto salvation in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe, 1 Corinthians 1.21. And that's why later he told the same church that he did not peddle the word of God for profit, or distort the word of God, but set forth the truth plainly for their eternal benefit. 2 Corinthians 2, 17 and 4, 2. That's why Paul told the Galatians that if anybody is preaching to them a gospel other than what he preached to them, let him be eternally condemned. 
Galatians 1.9. That's why he told the Ephesians that they were included in Christ when they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, Ephesians 1.13. He also told them that God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 4, 11-13. That's why Paul told the church in Colossae, in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, Colossians 3, 16. That's why he told the Philippians that because of his chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously in Fearlessly, Philippians 1.14. That's why he told the Thessalonians, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And why later on he instructed them, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. That's why Paul told his disciple Timothy that the elders he chose for the church must be able to teach while the deacons who served in his church must keep hold of the deep truths of faith with a clear conscience in 1 Timothy 3.2 and 9. In a subsequent letter, he tells Timothy that his job description was centered on one thing. Timothy, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say that their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myth, 2 Timothy 4. Two and four. That's why Paul rejoiced with Titus that God had brought his word to life through the preaching entrusted to him by the command of God our Savior in Titus 1 3. That's why Paul encouraged Philemon to be active in sharing his faith, the word faith referring not to an emotionally subjective state, but to a defined set of beliefs. Philemon chapter 6. That's why. The author of Hebrews warned, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. That's why James reminds his readers, God uh, chose us at birth through the word of truth and not to merely listen to the word and to deceive ourselves, but to do what? Do what the word says, James 1.18 and 20. That's why Peter, reminded the saints scattered over a number of regions that they had been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God, 1 Peter 1, 23, and that the word of the Lord stands forever, 
1 Peter 1.25. It's also why he said in a second letter, no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit in 2 Peter 1. 20 and 21. That's why John wrote, if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. 1 John 2, 5 and 6. And why he said, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands, 2 John 6. And why he declared that he has no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. 3 John 4. That's why Jude spent almost an entire letter warning his readers against false teachers. Jude 4 through 16. Promising that the Lord was coming to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts that they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him in Jude 15. And that's why John in the book of Revelation commended that the church in Philadelphia, I know that you have little strength. You have kept my word and not denied my name. Revelation 3.8. So how does First Baptist Church display the character of God? We display God's character by listening to God's word and obeying it. Listen to me clearly. The church finds its life as it listens to the word of God. It finds its purpose as it lives out and displays the word of God. The church finds its life as it listens to the word of God. It finds its purpose as it lives out and displays the word of God. The church's job is to listen, then to echo. That's it. The primary challenge that churches face today is not figuring out, oh, we got to figure out how we can be a relevant church, or we got to figure out how we can be a strategic church, or we got to figure out how we can be a sensitive church to this sensitive need, or we got to figure out how we can be a deliberate church that's going to deliberately do this. The primary focus of the church is figuring out how to be faithful. How do we listen to the word of God? And how do we trust and obey the word of God? That, how do we do what it says? Proving that we are a healthy church. In that sense, we're just like the people of Israel preparing to enter the promised land. God is saying to us, listen church, follow the good news is that we have, unlike ethnic Israel, the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And we have the spirit of his son, the seal 
and the promise of our redemption. Will we listen and follow? Will we listen and follow? In the coming weeks, we will be covering some things that go on in a healthy church. My prayer is not that you will listen to the pastor, but my prayer is that you will listen to the word of God and follow. My prayer is that you will see what the local church should be, then do it. Will you do that? Spoiler alert. The end of the last Avengers movie, not the one that's in the theaters now, which I'm going to go watch after church, but the end of the last one, Avengers Infinity War. If you don't want to hear this, plug your ears. Spoiler alert. Thanos wipes out a good portion of the universe, including all of the Avengers, but the six original. Gone at the snap of his finger. Trailers for the new movie. Avengers Endgame. The Avengers are gathering to battle one common enemy, Thanos. And you have different moments coming together where they say, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Is that you? Is that you? Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, On this rock I will build my church, and the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus was declaring that the church take the fight to hell, and the very gates of hell will not stand against the church of Christ. Church, You take God's word, and over the next few weeks, will you say, whatever it takes for us to be a healthy church, whatever it takes, we'll do it. I don't care what it is, whatever it takes. Well, pastor, some people might leave, maybe. Pastor, you might get fired, maybe. Whatever it takes. Because we know we win. We win.
I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Will you follow? Here in a moment, we're going to sing a song. Maybe you need to, to pray this morning. Maybe you want me to pray with you. I'd be glad to do that. Maybe you just need to pray in your pew and just say, Lord, whatever it takes. I'll do it. Help us to be healthy. Help us to be healthy. Semper reformanda. Help us to always be reforming to your image and likeness, Lord, in everything we do. That we will do whatever it takes. Or perhaps, as I was talking about what it is to be a Christian for the first time, a light bulb went on. And you said, I'm not a Christian. If that's you this morning, I'd be glad to talk with you as well. If God has spoken to you and you need to talk or you just need to pray, I want to encourage you to do that. Maybe you just want to say, Pastor, I'll do whatever it takes. You can let me know later. I'm just giving you a fair warning of what's coming. Let's close a prayer. Father.